You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Hey, hey, this is Jess O'Reilly, your friendly neighborhood sexologist, and I am joined today by individual couple and sex therapist, Toronto-based Kat Kova. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Now Such you're, a pleasure. You're a sex therapist. What drew you to the world of sex therapy? <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'm your friendly neighborhood sex therapist. <laughs> um, and it's so funny. I actually, people don't really believe me when I say this, but I wanted to be a sex therapist from the age of 10. Uh, I was so in love with uh, Dr. Sue Johansson on the Sunday Night Sex Show. And what I found to be so interesting about her was that she just delivered education and in an entertaining way and she seemed to really be meeting a need that that didn't seem to be met anywhere else that I was exposed to um, and so for better or worse yeah that's kind of how I got into it um, and I always really wanted to uh, to develop into someone that I felt like was missing in my life who I wanted to talk to when I was a little kid so that's kind of part of my story so Sue Johansson had a nationally syndicated television show in Canada. It used to be on Sunday nights. So she was sort of our Canadian version of Dr. Ruth. She was a little bit more subdued than Dr. Ruth, right? A little bit less of a caricature, would you say? I, I found her to be outrageous. I, I mean, have you seen her on Conan O'Brien? Yeah, she's very she, funny. She like straps a dildo to her face. <laughs> oh, I don't remember that. And she's about like 80 years old, so it's awesome. I mean, I thought she was 80 back when she was on the show in the <laughs> 80s, so I, I can't imagine. But she, she was really great at what she did, and she really did just deliver the goods, matter of fact. Yeah. Of course, people will look back and say, oh, but she said this or she said that. Yes, it was... 20, 30 years ago, mm-hmm. some things have changed, but she was a trailblazer in the field. So you followed in her footsteps. Did you go straight and study sexuality right away, or is it a path that kind of led back to where you are today? Yeah, it's definitely something that I was led back to because I didn't tell anyone at the age of 10 that I wanted to be a sex therapist. I thought they would really look at me like I was very strange. And people still do, by the way. Yes, of course. (laughs) Uh, Because it's very unorthodox, particularly in my community, which is the Serbian community. Um, And it was something that I really decided on when I was about 22. And I was alone in Tokyo working there um, and decided I really want to do something that has a lot of purpose in my life. When I was in Tokyo, I was working in a job that I didn't really like. Um, It was kind of a year off from school. So it was between my BA in psychology. And then I decided to do a certificate in sexuality studies at York University and went on to do my master's at the University of Guelph in couple and family therapy because I thought that would really give me an opportunity to discuss couple issues and how sexuality is such a big, important part of you know, couple relationships. So that was a really good path for me and allowed me to do what I really want to do, which is to talk about sex with couples and individuals all day long. (laughs) And and so the couples who come to you, what would you say is the top issue with which they're presenting? Um, I would say that with individuals, men and women, I don't see a lot of trans folks. Um, I think they have a lot of barriers to accessing treatment. Um, So it's mostly men and women and couples, and they all present 
most commonly with um, desire issues. So what they would term as low desire or erectile dysfunction. I say that with quotations because it's, um, you know, I don't like that term. It's know? it's not necessarily a dysfunction. And, yeah. and it's interesting because I took a couple of calls and emails last week from you know, healthy young men in their 30s who are having difficulties with erection and psychogenic, meaning that they're thinking about something that's stressing them out. Usually, oh my gosh, am I going to lose my erection? Mm -hmm. And they develop a physiological response to that anxiety, which is that they lose their erection. And it's, of, of course, cyclical and circular because they think about it, they lose it. They think about it, they lose it. And I don't know if you find this, but simply the reassurance that this happens to every damn person with a penis, every single one of y'all, yeah, at some point in time, yeah. more than once it will happen, helps them to know that they're not alone because they have this issue. You know, oftentimes they stay in a relationship that they're not even happy with because they don't want to move on to another partner who's going to find out. And in the secrecy breeds shame. And the shame, of course, reinforces the anxiety and and so on. But simply the reassurance that, you know, you're not alone. Like, this is this is surmountable. This can be overcome. That's the biggest thing. It's like, it will happen. It's really reassuring to know that it will happen. And a little trick, I think I like to um, tell guys who are struggling with this or people with penises who are struggling with this is to actually intentionally lose their erection so that they gain comfort with it something called the stop restart technique so you're kind of just on your own or with a partner you're having some stimulation you get an erection and then you intentionally stop the stimulation lose the erection and then you kind of keep going and you stop and restart and it's great because you just learn not to freak out and you're kind of cured from it the next time that it happens then you don't freak out because the world did not end your partner didn't run away it's not the last time you'll ever have sex and this this is a a cognitive behavioral method right in terms of facing your anxiety head-on actually go and expose yourself to that anxiety provoking stimulus (laughs) and and you see that you know what it's okay it happened it doesn't mean it'll happen every single time now let's talk about desire so why do your clients not experience the desire they want? Yeah, that's a really great question. I'm just circling back to your other question about what are the most common issues, I would say. So erectile, again, not dysfunction, but we throw around that term because it's so commonly used in the literature. So ED, desire, and communication hmm. issues. Um, and I think all three, they kind of, at the root of it, are... Um, problems with anxiety, different types of anxiety. And it could be fear, it could be shame that's present within that anxiety. And there's so many different influences, I think, um, so many different factors that contribute to it. So the big the the big thing that I see is beliefs about sexuality impacting, you know, who can initiate it. What can I say during sex? Can I get what I want during intercourse or intimacy? Or um, can I even get what I want in my relationship? Am I allowed? Do I deserve to say what I want from my partner? Or, or say what it is that I want and get it from my partner? So cultural beliefs and kind of the societies that we're raised in, they have a really big influence on actual physiological responses and the connection between the brain and the body is is um just so 
I think it's not really talked about, but we're not just floating heads and we're not (laughs) disconnected from our body. The two talk to one another and Mm -hmm. they inform the responses that we have down there. So what do we do to overcome, let's let's take a common challenge. So somebody feels shame around asking for what they want because it's not a dominantly reflected desire. So it's maybe it's not sex in the dark in the missionary position with someone you love. Maybe they want something kinkier. Maybe they want something a little wilder. Maybe they want it more frequently. How do you overcome the shame uh, and simply come to terms with your own desires and feel good about what you want, whether you want it not at all, or you want it every single day in some kinky way. Mm. Oh man, it's, <sighs> I think it's a really personal journey for everyone. And where I see this um, the most is in people that come into therapy and they've just cheated on their partner. Mm-hmm. And they've cheated not just with you know someone else and had the same type of sex, but they actually went and they got their needs met mm-hmm. for a particular kink or for a particular fetish that they've never actually revealed to their partner because of incredible shame, profound shame around this. Um, and usually um, it happens in the shadows, right? Like an affair happens in the shadows where it's a bit more protected. Um, and the same stakes are not there, right? A relationship is not at stake. Love, perhaps, sometimes is not at stake. Um, sometimes you go to a, a sex worker and they provide that kind of service free of judgment, free of shame, and um, free of any kind of attachment to or expectation. And so it just it, it becomes this really freeing thing that allows people to explore their kinks and fetishes and um, but at the sometimes at the um, expense of their relationship when the affair is discovered. Um, and often I find the other partner is really upset that they didn't just tell them. And so I think it's just knowing like you can really be yourself. It's something worth doing to try to be yourself in your relationship and not hide from your partner. How to go about that? That's <laughs> really, that's very, very scary thing to do. Um, Yeah, I think uh, oftentimes we tell ourselves a story in our head. If I tell my partner this, they will freak out. If I reveal what I really want, they're going to judge me. If I share my deepest, darkest, most, you know, salacious fantasy, they're going to go running for the hills. Mm -hmm. And so running for the hills would be the negative consequence. Being judged would be the negative consequence. Your partner freaking out would be the negative consequence. But then you go and find that someplace else and cheat on them. And all three of those negative consequences arise nonetheless. <laughs> and, and in addition to yeah. those negative consequences, a lot of hurt on both sides and probably an intensified shame on your own. So there is this need to communicate. So when a couple comes to you and they're having trouble communicating their fantasies or their desires, whether they be kinky or edgy or vanilla, how do you facilitate that conversation? Is there an exercise you do with them in session or for homework? Um, well, sometimes I get couples to kind of reveal their fantasies to one another. And Esther Perel talks about this a lot when there's a bit of distance between you and your partner, when there's a little bit of mystery or something is 
revealed that you didn't know about your partner who you've been taking maybe for granted or who Mm -hmm. you think you knew everything about who feels so familiar to you Mm -hmm. that's when that desire is is created of course because when you first met them part of the allure of this person isn't that that they were younger or hotter or more exciting than it's that you didn't know them the unknown (laughs) is exciting you know i remember the moment i found out brandon had a rat tail when he was little such a turn on kidding it was not totally see that oh no (laughs) it was not a turn on he totally had a rat tail (laughs) but he did not tell me about it but it's so cool when you've been with someone for so long to learn anything new about them whether it's a vulnerability or a Mm -hmm. fantasy or something from their past or something that concerns them and so okay so let's say I, I come to you with my partner and I say I'm having trouble talking about a specific fantasy is there a question you try and address? Is there a way you try and, try and draw it out? I mean, I'll tell you one way I do it in groups ah, of couples okay, yeah. is I have the whole group draw their fantasies. Ooh, and they I only have that. a minute. And most people can't draw. Like, well, I mean, some people are annoying and they're great artists. Good for you, people. <laughs> but most of us have to label things. And then we crinkle them up into a ball. We throw them all around the room. And then when we don't know where yours has landed, it becomes anonymous. We open them up and we try and decipher them. And it's really funny because I remember I included mine once and it was just a threesome. And somebody said, this one is having sex with a donkey and a dog. I'm like, that's not a donkey and a dog. Those are humans, man. It's human sex, consensual human threesome sex. But it can be really funny. And I think the laughter cuts the tension. Oh, I love that. Could you do that in therapy? I am going to definitely do that in therapy. Thank you, (laughs) that is amazing it's kind of like the snowball technique right exactly oh my god I love that with fantasies that's brilliant um no there's you know what I think coming into sex therapy that is the practice first of all therapy I think happens within the context of a relationship so you as the therapist have a relationship with your client and it kind of parallels or mirrors the relationships that you have outside of the therapy room Hmm. and sometimes we can use that information and highlight it back to the client to say like hey actually I'm noticing that you're you know holding back you're um, having a really hard time with this can you tell me why and kind of assess, figure out what is the reason behind not being able to talk about something. And then when you identify what it is, like it might be, well, I never really got to talk about sex with my parents Mm -hmm. or with friends, or I've always been a really shy person, then you can work on that. Um, But they get that practice. I ask some very direct questions, you know, almost with every client I ask, Um, do you masturbate? How do you masturbate? When did you start masturbating? What kind of pornography or fantasy do you use? What's been a long-standing fantasy that you've had, which really reveals a lot about people. As you said, you decipher them and you kind of look at what's going on for that person. And in doing that and actually just getting that experience and talking to someone maybe for the first time about such personal things, they get that experience and they get the confidence to then go and talk to their partner and have that same type of intimate, I call it intimacy with my clients because we have really intimate conversations and we have a connection um, that they can go ahead and do that with their partner. 
Yeah, and, and we often use the word intimacy as a euphemism for sex, yeah. when in fact, that's really not what intimacy is. Sex can be a part of intimacy. But as you said, these conversations can be even feel even more deeply meaningful. So I want to go back to those questions, because some people will be able to go see Kat Gova uh, at her therapy practice in Toronto. Others will be able to get in touch with you for phone and online counseling. But for those who don't, for those who want to start today, those are some difficult questions you asked, specifically mm. the one about how do you masturbate? Mm. Because that would be difficult for many of us to describe. And so if it's yeah. difficult to describe to a therapist, it might be even good to just start with yourself right now. So if you want to, wherever you are listening right now, start with those questions for yourself. So if you could go through them one more time. Oh, sure. It's okay yeah. if they're a little different, because I'm sure every situation is different. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think kind of do you masturbate is number one, because some people just don't even think that that's accessible to mm -hmm. them. Um, what are some societal messages or messages you got from your parents and your religious leaders or whatever it is about doing that? Mm -hmm. Is that a barrier? Mm -hmm. And then if you do, how do you do it? Um, do you, you know, what parts of your body do you touch? I have a vulva puppet mm -hmm. that I of absolutely adore. Of course you do. I mean, <laughs> what kind of sex therapist doesn't have a vulva puppet? <laughs> yeah, and I actually, I got it at a silent auction at a sex conference. Oh, funny. In Atlanta, it was the, the scientific... Oh, Society uh, for Soci the Scientific Study of Sexuality. Exactly. They had a silent auction. I saw Volva Pup and I was like, <gasps> me and another person and I were just fighting for it. So it ended up being like outrageously expensive. <laughs> and so I try and use it as much as possible to like get more bang for money. Yeah, you got to get that money's worth. <laughs> when you're spending money on vulvas, you want, you want every last drop. <laughs> I have two in the drawer next to you. Every, yeah, I'm, I, I'm not surprised. Yeah. And every last drop, that was epic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyways, I kind of use that and I ask people, like, where? Where do you touch mm -hmm. yourself? Mm -hmm. uh, if I'm working with couples, like, do you know where she or he or they like to be touched? Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes they don't even know the proper words for the different body parts, which right. are so important. What part do you touch? Do you touch your entire vulva? Do you touch the clitoral hood? Do you put, insert some fingers or a toy into your vagina? And um, do you know the difference? Um, and when did you start? What do you fantasize about? You know, yeah, And how do you feel you about it? How do you feel about right. it? I think yeah, that's a great that's place a great for, for all of us to start. That set of questions, you know, we work in the field. We ask other people to do this contemplation, to share with us. But even I, I think for me to stop and think about those things right now would be really useful to better understand myself. And part of why we don't communicate with our partners is because we don't even know what we want ourselves. We don't know what our sexual values are. We don't know what our own desires are because the messages around sex are so not only strong but conflicting. Mm -hmm. Right? You're supposed to be so sexual and so good at it, but not too good, right? Or not too sexual. Mm -hmm. And of course, it varies with your gender, with your age, with your race, with your class, all of these facts, with your, your body type, your ability, all of those things interfere or intersect with what we're allowed to want, what we're allowed to do. Absolutely. Yeah. We have that whole Madonna whore dichotomy going on that we grew up with. These are things you can do outside of marriage. These are things that you can do within marriage or a long-term partnership, although it's usually marriage. Right? Yeah. We'll talk about that, the Madonna whore complex, because I don't think we've talked about that on the podcast no. before. Um, yeah. I mean, it's this idea that with, you know, with your 
wife or you're the mother of your child you can only have a certain type of sex and maybe a more polite type of sex <laughs> and then you know outside of your marriage you can actually explore some of those kinks or fetishes or something you know a, a bit more naughty um with someone else right and you but you can't combine those two things together you can't look at your wife let's say for example we're using kind of heterosexual context and within the context of you know marriage um you, you can't see her as both a mother and a woman a sexual woman a desiring woman you know a naughty woman um and and this happens a lot mm -hmm. and is really i see that a lot linked to when people go out and have affairs unfortunately right and and sometimes it has to do with the relationship where all you ever talk about is parenting yeah. and your children but sometimes it is i think a cultural learning that results in this mental block that you and the, the obviously we're looking to overcome this dichotomy because if you want to be in a long-term monogamous relationship you're going to have to learn to see your partner regardless of gender as sexy as a sex object and I tell people this all the time I'm like just because you love and respect your partner doesn't mean you can't treat them like a piece of meat sometimes or <laughs> yes. tofu for my vegetarian friends <laughs> I mean you want to look at them like an animal right yeah right? and you can do that and be respectful and you can play with lines of of playful, let's say, role-playing disrespect. That's something I love. Like, but my husband loves me so much. He is so nice to me. I feel like anything I do, he's just always going to love me. And so, so I'm quite turned on by the subversive, which is feeling a little jealous, feeling not good mm -hmm. enough. Do I actually in life want to feel not good enough? Of course not. But in sex, I love taking that subversive emotion because I feel so safe and playing with it a little. Mm -hmm. So can I ask you something? Sure. <laughs> um, about your relationship. Sure. Um, d does having that type of emotional closeness and safety with Brandon, does, does that allow you to be a little bit more free and a little bit more kinky in your sex life? Yeah. 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 You know, I've always said that, mm -hmm. you know, I think the formula is oh. to build a foundation that is so strong and so healthy and so loving and so respectful that you can make space for risk. Because mm -hmm. if we're already on shaky ground, I'm mm -hmm. not going to want to go to those risky places. Like, and of course we have times in our year, in our month, in our relationship where we are more on shaky ground. I can even speak on a micro level with my cycle. Like, I don't want those same subversive, mm -hmm. perhaps people would consider them demeaning mm -hmm. experiences when I'm, when I'm approaching my period. Because my hormones are changing, my mood is changing, my confidence is not as high, I'm tired, I'm cranky, I'm mad about the mess on the floor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just don't want sex. No, I actually do, but I want a different type of sex. Sure. And, and so you have to have the ability to communicate the specificity of your desires to your partner. Because it's one thing for me to say, hey, babe, I want you to make me feel jealous. It turns me on. Okay, but if he does that at the wrong time in the wrong place when I'm in the wrong mood, that's going to backfire. So I have to be more specific and say, hey, babe, I love to feel jealous when. And before you do it, I need you to make me feel this way. And after you do it, this is how you can support me. Love it. Yeah. So specific. Very specific. I love that. <laughs> and you have to continually do that in a relationship. You can't just have one conversation about sex. 
Yeah, right. The talk. The talk. <laughs> the birds and the bees yes. with your bow. Exactly. And you just have to keep on talking about it because you're right. Every, I mean, we don't exist in a vacuum. Our sexuality doesn't exist in a vacuum. Something that a coworker said to you earlier that day could spark some kind of trauma that you experienced when you were younger. Mm-hmm. And you're in a completely different place and you need a different type of nurturing Mm -hmm. perhaps through sexuality or a different type of energy exchange through um sex yeah yeah and so what can couples do say on a daily basis i love to think of things they can do in 60 seconds if they know they're feeling a certain way today, and maybe they didn't, maybe a coworker didn't trigger my trauma, but they pissed me off. They pushed one of my buttons, and I come home. And 99 out of 100 days, if Brandon were to approach me a specific way, it would feel good. But today's not the day. How can we communicate that to our partners when we walk through the door or before we get home? Oh, that's such a great question. Yeah, because it, it kind of takes consent outside of the bedroom and really highlights how important that is too that we highlight for our partners or communicate to our partners rather uh, the boundaries that we have around our energy levels right and saying something like right now babe I just need 10 minutes to decompress from work I need to take a shower I just need to just have quiet. That's what I'm really craving right now. And when I have those 10 minutes, it's going to be so delicious. I'm going to feel so happy that I had them. And then we can reconnect. Um, And to your question about what's something that couples can do in 60 seconds, let's say when they're trying to negotiate or someone is trying to initiate a sexual encounter or an erotic encounter with someone, and you're not really in the mood, I challenge those people who are a default no to give themselves some time to really understand where that no is coming from is it is it a just a no because you have some rules about sexuality is it a no because you think if i don't get enough sleep then tomorrow is going to be is it anxiety i mean is tomorrow going to be chaos is that anxiety what is going on for you and give yourself like 10 i mean 60 seconds give yourself 10 minutes to figure out what is actually going on for you and if that no can be turned into a all right maybe let's let's kind of see how it goes and know that you can stop at any time right and yeah you can say no i'm not in the mood and you can say if you prefer no, I'm not in the mood, but let's see if I can get in the mood, mm-hmm, right? Because there, there is this myth of spontaneous desire, like go to work all day, cook mm-hmm. dinner, do the dishes, you know, help the kids with homework, put them to bed, talk to your mother-in-law on the phone, get into bed and like, yeah, let's do it. Like not particularly realistic. Yeah, when you're first dating, you might, you know, carry around gum or mints all the time. You're um, dressed to the nines. You're looking really flawless. You're trying really hard, right, to um, put your best foot forward. But when you're, you know, let's say you've been living together for a while and you've seen each other through the good times and the bad times, through health and sickness, and you wake up in the morning and you have like really bad breath and your partner rolls over and they're like, hey, what's up, babe? Want to fool around and your response might be an immediate no because you're not feeling that fresh Mm -hmm. if that's the case get up and take a shower Mm -hmm. there is no such thing as spontaneity it's a myth right yeah (laughs) the myth of spontaneity is interesting because we do believe that in the beginning everything we did was spontaneous 
when in fact the opposite is true. Hours and days went into planning and creating what seemed to be at the moment a spontaneous encounter. False. <laughs> right. But we th- it was fun back then, yeah. right? So you had to make a plan to meet up. Mm-hmm. You probably, if, if it's modern dating, you've texted and been a little bit playful before. You've gotten dressed. You've gotten ready. You've carved out the time. Somehow your roommate's not going to be home or you're going to find a quiet place to do, a private place to do it or not, you know, if you're wild like that, maybe someplace public. And we look back and say, oh, but it just happened back then when, as you said, it's so, it, a lot of effort went into it. But when we ask people in relationships to mm-hmm. do the same, they're like, oh, it seems like a lot of work. Seems like a lot of work. And also there's a resistance to be, being intimate with someone if that desire doesn't feel spontaneous. Mm-hmm. And that's true for men and for women. Like if they're not feeling tingly down there spontaneously, um, they think that they are not interested or that, that that it's not an option mm-hmm. um and so they wait and they wait and they wait and they say "Ugh, planned sex like a sex date like a, a night out that's supposed to result in sex that's not cool that's not spontaneous that's not sexy but i think the exact opposite is true i think you're intentionally creating a scenario where you can both relax and create space to be in the mood hmm Right. And to be together intimately, yeah. it doesn't even always have to result in sex. No. Because I hear a lot of, for instance, new parents say, you know what, if we can get a night alone, we just want a good night's sleep. <laughs> and I, I think that's perfectly fine, too. You know, I, I've been in that scenario where I'm away for a while. And I think I'm, you know, I miss Brandon and I miss sleeping with him and I miss the sex. And I think that the moment I get home, I'm going to want to jump his bones. But honestly, sometimes I'm flying back from India or sometimes I'm flying back from China. And by the time I get here... I don't want to jump anyone's bones. I need to sleep first and then we can do it in the morning. Or if we do it the next day or the next day, we will survive. You don't have to. I think we make too big of a deal about sex. I think we do. I mean, we we have been talking about it for the past half hour, <laughs> making a big deal. But it, it yeah, I mean, we kind of were over sexed and undersexed at the same time. Mm-hmm. And we have like this idea about how much we sh- how much sex we should be having that's not really an important question right people are obsessed with it they are obsessed right with it. how often they're doing it they're counting yeah. instead of just focusing on the quality and the experience right. and how good they're doing it i f- oh, i yeah. fall into that yeah yeah me too i fall yeah. into the pressure of like how long has it been since we've done it mm-hmm. and for me it often has to do with my own frustration with myself for not making time Right. Now, before you go, mm-hmm. I, want, I want to ask you something about my life. So Brandon and I have been together a while. If I were to come to you in therapy and, and had to pick an issue to address, because you do do brief solution-focused therapy, so we can yeah. look for a specific outcome. Um, the issue I address involves what I might call complacency. So we've been together 18 years. We have sex pretty regularly. It feels really, really good. It's still like so good for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find that oftentimes I just want to do it in the way that it works, like the way I know it works, mm-hmm. uh, sort of like going to a new restaurant. So I could go to a new restaurant, but I really want to have a good meal and I know this other restaurant's really good. And then I might miss out on trying something new and exciting. So, you know, we've done lots of wild stuff over the years, whether it's like simple stuff like toys to going to sex clubs or kink clubs or more edgy stuff. And right now I feel like we're in this tried and true period. And I, I, here's the thing. 
So I asked myself what I would tell a client. On one hand, it feels really good for me. Like it's just really, really good. Mm -hmm. So why do I feel pressure to spice it up and fix what's not broken? I I don't need to be swinging from chandeliers. I don't need to be frolicking in the woods uh, because it is feeling really good. On the other hand, I know that I shouldn't wait until I'm bored to do something about it. So should I keep doing what I'm doing and maybe just change it up once in a while to try something new? Um, And so, yeah, what, what should I do? Uh, oh, save wow. my sex life in a minute <laughs> I don't think you need I mean it doesn't sound like you need saving I no. think it sounds like what you've been doing is really pleasurable and it works and it's so good even after 18 years I know wow I'm 100 <laughs> <laughs> we met really young <laughs> well you're a, a young looking 100 <laughs> oil of ole thrice a day <laughs> Thrice. <laughs> Thrice. Um, so my advice, uh, I don't really give advice. I um, am curious about where the, it sounds like there's a little bit of pressure that mm-hmm. you're feeling mm-hmm. to spice it up. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of looking at it's been a really long-term relationship mm-hmm. and we kind of keep doing the same thing over and over that really works for us. Um, is there some fear around what that means for you and your relationship? Yeah, I think for me, it's always a fear of being bored because I get bored really easily. Of being bored? Yeah, I'm afraid I could get bored. Boring. Or being boring, yes. Is more that? Yeah, because I, and Mm -hmm. you know, maybe I need to take the time, and I wish Brandon was here, to talk to him about how he's feeling. Mm -hmm. um, Because I think I'm probably more easily open about what Mm -hmm. I want. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. I'm fe- I fear being bored myself. And of course I fear being boring. Like boring. the boring sexologist. Can that be a podcast? <gasps> oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think I might start this podcast because I have those same exact fears, right? I have those exact same fears, but I find that if you can tell your partner that like, Hey, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm really enjoying what's happening, but from time to time I get a little bit scared that maybe you're bored and... I mean, what's really behind that is kind of an attachment fear, right? Mm -hmm. You're afraid of losing someone. You're afraid if you don't keep their interest or Mm -hmm. sustain it long enough that they're going to uh, look elsewhere, Mm -hmm. that they will leave you. That's our biggest, deepest fear as Mm -hmm. humans. And so when you say that, in the context of couples therapy, I use emotionally focused couples therapy, it's all about expressing what your deepest fears are to your partner when you're feeling that overwhelming emotion that that fear and then in doing that if your partner is very responsive and if they're sensitive to your needs in those moments they can reassure you and that can lead to a different kind of connection and maybe a different kind of Mm -hmm. erotic experience too Mm -hmm. i like that so emotionally focused therapy which involves looking at your deepest fears as it applies to sex I think I'm going to try that. So if I were to begin with one question for myself, where would I begin? If I'm not pleasing my partner, if my partner is not sexually satisfied, um, then what do I imagine will happen? What's my worst possible case scenario? Good. And maybe share that okay. with your partner. With Brandon, not goes. with all you folks. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, we we have to stop. Um, I'd love to have you back again when Brandon's here. Maybe we can do a sessions type type uh, episode. I'm in. That would be really really interesting. So where can people find you, Kat? 
Um, so I do have a website where you can submit a contact form if you're interested in coming in on your own or with a with a partner or partners. Um, it's www.catcovatherapy.com. Um, my office is at 320 Danforth Avenue in Suite 202, and it's uh, right next to Chester Station. So it's just a quick TTC ride away from pretty much anywhere in the city. Awesome. So that that's in Toronto, and you also have a YouTube channel coming out called My Therapist Says. Yeah. <laughs> so people can check in there, subscribe in advance. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a blast, and I'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you to you for listening, and thank you once again to Desire Resorts and Cruises for your ongoing support of this podcast. Follow along at Desire Experience. Wherever you're at, have a great week, folks. We'll be back every Friday with a new episode. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life.